I'm happy to be introducing our convocation lecturer for the morning, Roger Nam. Roger is Dean and Professor of Biblical Studies at Portland Seminary in, at, of George Fox University, and he will tell you a little bit about his publications at some point, and we're pleased to have him here. Um, and I meant to say last night, now we'll get you up here, Roger, but I just wanted to tell you uh, on, on who gave the gift that allows you to be here for the price of a registration fee. Um, Joe and Elizabeth Engel were lay people. Um, they happened to be Presbyterians um, in New York City. They attended first for a long time. They were at Madison Avenue Press uh, there for a while. They believed in preaching. They believed that preaching made a huge difference to faith and to the church, and that the future of the church depends on sustained good preaching. They also felt that the first 10 years of ministry were among the toughest for many ministers, and the statistics say that a lot of people quit. If they're going to quit, they'll quit during that time. So they decided to create the Engel Institute of Preaching um, just for this cohort, and we, we hope to actually to expand it. We, we think that we would have their blessing for a, a second track within a, a year or two uh, for midlife, uh, mid-career people, because that's a pretty critical time these days, too. Uh, but it was due to their generosity. They also endowed some chairs of preaching here and also at Union Seminary in New York. They were generous in many ways to many organizations, but it's it's due to the Engel family um, that you're here. and. Um, we're so pleased to be able to uh, host you on their on behalf of their generosity and their vision. So with uh, that, uh, I turn this podium over to you. Thank you, Sally. It's, uh, it really is a pleasure to be here and to he actually hear the vision of the Engels in funding this opportunity for you. Portland Seminary is part of the Lilly Endowment, and we received a grant of a million dollars to help pastors thrive, and Princeton received this as well. And in writing the grant, they actually gave us $50,000 to write the grant to research what thriving means. And one of the things that we found out is pastors that have safe people who are pastors thrive. They tend to thrive more. And those pastors are often outside their own silos, their own denominations, their own churches. So this week is a great opportunity for you to be in community, uh, some old friends, some new friends. And uh, I'm delighted to share this stage with you. Um, I am in the middle of about 10 years of research on Ezra and Nehemiah, and so I want to kind of condense what I'm learning, what I've written, and what I'm studying into five sessions for you to reach communities of faith. Uh, I thought about the broad scope, who is the God of Ezra and Nehemiah, and a subtext, why does it matter? Why should you care about the God of Ezra and Nehemiah? And so uh, I want to talk a little bit about how I became where I am right now, a little bit about the story, and how I ended up with this text, because this isn't actually my original intent. And so I was a pastor, too, like you. I was a pastor at a really large church, and I noticed that the Engel Institute is for churches of all sizes. This is the church I pastored in. Every Sunday, we had about 30,000 people. And so this was in Seoul, Korea, and about 10,000 were children. And we had about 60 on pastoral staff, and I was the youngest of 60 on pastoral staff. And if you know anything about Korea, if you're the youngest, it's not, it's not a great thing. It's not a, it's not a positive thing. Uh, the, the president of Korea was an elder at the time. 
not the president of some club or the, the president of Korea. And this is one of the few South Korean presidents that hasn't been in prison since leaving office. And I know what you're thinking right now, like, hmm, in prison after office, I, I won't talk about that. Uh, he was an elder, and so the, the lead pastor of the church on Sundays after the main services would go to, in Korean it's called the Blue Roof, but essentially the White House, and give services for the staff and for the president, the elder. Worked there three years, never saw him once. But he was busy, I guess, doing stuff, presidenting, whatever. Uh, and the reason I pastored in Korea, I'm actually second generation Korean American. I was born in the States. And I didn't speak Korean as a kid. At the time, my mom and dad really wanted us to learn English well. And so they encouraged us, to, and the schools encouraged them that we shouldn't learn Korean because they thought at the time it would have a, it'd be an obstacle to us learning English. And so it wasn't until college that I kind of felt the draw to learn Korean. So I took two years in college, and I felt the call to ministry. And to the credit of my pastor, it was a Caucasian senior pastor of a church that encouraged me to explore my roots. And I said, okay. So after I graduated from college, I went to Korea. I lived there for four years. And I, I took Korean classes for about a year. And I thought, this isn't enough. I want to learn the language more. And so I enrolled in seminary, and I asked, do you have part-time? They said, no. And so I, okay, I guess I'm full-time. And I, um, after the first week, I felt this is the right place for me. And I, I stayed for four years. I finished my MDiv in Korean. And so what I like to tell students is my grades were not super, I'll say. And so uh, actually, they're, they're okay. In most classes, I got A's and B's with two exceptions. In beginning Hebrew, I got a C minus in beginning Hebrew. In Old Testament introduction, I got an F. I'm not talking hyperbole. I literally got an F and had to retake the class. And so on the strength of that 0.9 GPA, I felt God was calling me to be a biblical studies professor. <laughs> so here I am. And when I was 26, I graduated with my, so in Korea, guys need to do military service. And while I was in Korea, I, um, I quit my citizenship, my Korean citizenship, in order to exempt myself from military service. I remember being in immigration, and they literally asked me, you can either serve in the army for three years, or you can quit your citizenship. And I'm thinking in my head, I didn't say this, but is that an actual question? <laughs> like, are you really asking me that question? So I, I quit my citizenship, I graduated, and in Korea, you cannot be ordained till 30 in the Presbyterian Church, without exceptions. And so I came back to the States. But also, more importantly, I was 26. I was in ministry for three years for this huge church. I um, was in seminary full-time in my second language. And working part-time, which really, you know, doesn't exist in the church. It just isn't, isn't true. And I felt burnt out, even as a young 20-something single guy. Uh, so I came back to the States with that MDiv for Korea, from Korea, I, I decided to take a break from ministry, and I wor worked as a financial analyst for four years, and so in the Silicon Valley. So if you remember the 1990s, especially the late 90s, kind of imagine the Silicon Valley at that time. It was a tremendous time of economic growth and opportunity and maximum integrated products. Uh, you probably have something on you right now. If you have a cell phone, something by maximum integrated products, there are in iPhones, all sorts of uh, Nokia, Google-based phones, apps and stuff. And so they make semiconductors, analog semiconductors, and I was on the finance side. 
we started the company. Uh, when, I, when I joined the company, it was at about $420 million of sales, which is about mid-size. By the time I left, less than four years later, it was at $2.2 billion. Uh, if you had invested $10,000 in maximum integrated products in 1990, by 1999, it would have been over $250,000. And this was the Silicon Valley. And I remember something very crucial. When I was, I wasn't an engineer, I was a finance person. I studied econ as an undergraduate. But I remember my president, the CEO at the time, who founded the country, the company, uh, the company. Uh, he was an engineer. And I remember him saying a couple of things. One, we run this company through finance even though they're constantly making and inventing and patenting new semiconductors that are smaller, faster, and cheaper, more powerful, it was through finance that he ran the company, through the cost. And he made several times a statement. He was a very scary CEO. Uh, he founded the company. He was chairman of the board. Uh, he would just cuss out VPs all the time in front of people. But I remember him saying, we have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. And so the values of the company are shown in the way that they do the finance, in the way that they do the economics. The fiduciary responsibility is to the shareholder of a public company is to make as much money as possible, to increase the stock price. That's essentially what he's saying. He's appropriating the language of faith about his responsibility to the company. I worked at Maximum for four years, and in the spring of 2000, uh, my stepfather had been uh, struggling with cancer, and he had passed um, after about 18 months. And during this time, my wife and I, uh, we didn't have kids yet, we were spending a lot of time uh, caring for my stepfather, caring for my mother. We lived very close, a lot of trips to the pharmacy, a lot of phone calls, and there was one day where uh, we actually didn't have anything to do. And so we walked to Starbucks in Sunnyvale, California. And you never know when these life-changing moments will happen in your life. You, you never know. It could happen at any time. We walked to Starbucks. And uh, the company was doing great, but I was not happy. I was not satisfying. And she sensed that. We'd been married for almost a year. And she knew even though it's a nice job, it pays really well, it's very stable, part of a great company, had some good friends in as well. It just didn't feel right. And so she asked me, if God were to promise you success, what would you do? And I said, I, well, I think I'd be an Old Testament professor. I, I think I would enjoy it. I think I would be pretty good. And she said, well, why don't you do that? I said, okay. <laughs> and I, I think God's very gentle with me sometimes. I, uh, I had this really nice salary. We started shopping for a house in the Silicon Valley, uh, which is a big deal in your 20s. Um, I'd grown up there. But because of all the care I did with my family that year, uh, I had my performance review, and my raise was 3%, which now I know as a professor is huge. But uh, <laughs> as a financial analyst, it's, if you're doing well, I've been at 15 to 20% raises. And I got that, and that was that little push to quit that next day, to leave, and to, uh, for us both to pursue graduate school. And after seven short years of graduate study full time, I ended up at George Fox University in 2008, uh, where I worked. And during the time, 
I, I wrote my dissertation, I, I published that into a book, it's called um, Economic Exchange in the, in the Book of Kings. So I, I'm originally a King scholar, I worked on the Deuteronomistic history, and I studied a little bit about how economy is portrayed in the book of First and Second Kings. And so I published this book and I had a sabbatical coming. So I wrote this nice proposal for sabbatical uh, to write a second book called The Economics of Diaspora. So one book on the economy of pre-exilic times and then a second book during diasporic times of exile and post-exile, because I, I think they're very different times. And so I, I wrote this uh, nice sabbatical proposal, got it approved for a whole year in Seoul, Korea, so back. And so this sabbatical was planned for 2014. And I looked at that, and I did a little bit of math, and I realized 2014, this is actually 47 years after my mom and dad came. So my mom and dad came to the States in 1967. Uh, in the 1964, they released quotas that, so Asians can come. Uh, my aunt uh, married a GI at the end of the Korean War, and so she came in the early 50s, and one by one, she sponsored siblings to come to the States. And so my dad uh, came in 1967. My brother and I were born soon after that. And uh, so I called my mom. I said, Mom, we, we came here in 1967, right? And she said, oh, yeah, that's right. So I realized 47-year difference between us arriving to the States, and then me going back to Korea for a sabbatical for one year with my third generation uh, Korean American children and my wife, who's also of Korean descent. Uh, 47 years, because 586 is when the exile happened, and 539 is when Cyrus released the Judeans go back to Jerusalem, another 47 years. So there's something really fascinating about that. And if you think about Korea, one picture is from 1967 in Seoul, one picture is from 2014. Imagine the difference and change going back to this same land. So my experience with Korea is limited, but I went as a child, I went to the 1970s to meet my grandmother for the first time, my grandfather for the first time. This is Seoul, Korea. So a lot of you have probably been there. It's an amazing city. Korea is the 11th largest GDP in the world. In the 1960s, when my mom and dad left, it was one of the poorest countries of the world. Uh, one of the lowest GDPs, and you can imagine the change that they saw in Korea from the States. So I remember going to the 1970s, and this is Seoul. We went to my grandmother's house in Seoul. There was no running water. Uh, they ha we had one of those wells, and you had to boil the water before you drink it. And of course, when there's no running water, you have squatty outhouses, right? And as an American kid, I was like horrified at this. <laughs> so I remember going and I was so small, I went in with my grandmother. She held my hand so I wouldn't fall in. And the most embarrassing thing at the time, I was 22, which is so, I'm just kidding, I was six. <laughs> I wasn't 22. My mom came to the States. They flew in to Alaska, from Alaska to San Francisco where I was born. And she tells me stories about flying in and seeing all these huge buildings. And then she goes back to Korea and sees that as a much bigger, more developed place. I came back to Korea in 2014 with my family and I realized how totalizing this return to this land is for me, even though I was born to the States. And uh, summer 2014, we get this apartment. I settle with my visiting position. And uh, we have an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old with us. And they look Korean. And the 6-year-old, so in Korea, they love soccer. 
and we have these little um, mini fenced soccer courts on turf. So in the midst of this huge urban sprawl, kids can still play soccer. And it's really hot and humid, probably kind of like here during the summertime. And so it's August, and my six-year-old is playing soccer with the neighborhood kids. And remember, he looks Korean, and his accent's pretty clean. And uh, he's playing soccer with the kids, and he comes back, and he's like covered in six-year-old boy sweat, like he's just <laughs> dripping. And uh, he asks a question. He, he goes to me, and, and he asks me, Dad, am I Korean or am I American? So even as a six-year-old, there's a consciousness that he's not fully there, even though he looks Korean. And something about his interactions, which I did not witness, have him ask this very generally, am I, am I Korean or am I American? This is my argument for Ezra Nehemiah. And this is how I refract 10 years of research into how I want to read this book and present it to the leaders of communities of faith, to preachers, that it is the return to the land that fronts everything that you see theologically in Ezra Nehemiah. I want to share this with you in a way uh, even beyond my experience. So this is a video um, that talks a little bit about that. So for a few minutes long, please enjoy this. I'm 23 years old. I'm Indian. And this is the first time I'm ever gonna go to India and I'm doing it to bring my grandfather's ashes back. It's a little bit hard to process. Uh, when I left, I was 10 and um, I remember getting on the plane and sitting in the middle of the Pan Am jet. And, um, I just remember not being able to go to sleep because it was so exciting. And I kind of feel the same way now. We've made it! It's just been really humbling. This was the life that I could have had. My grandparents left all of this to come to America. So this is clarified butter, and it's added to the dal to make it more savory and delicious. Oh. Very good. You gotta have it. In a, you gotta have it. In a it's so good. After about a year of just speaking English at the house all the time, I remember one day in my brain, all my dreams were in Hindi, and then one day they turned into yeah. English. It was just something about being here and having access to like the country's spices that makes it completely different. We are going to see the homes where Vivek, Vinita, Vikram grew up. How are you feeling about going back to see your house? I'm very excited and I want to take a lot of pictures. So where's the house then? should be the at the end. Room. Yeah, it should be. This is the balcony um, where we used to stand, Mummy and I, and watch everybody play soccer. I just remember walking walking with my grandmother to get milk. We would go at four in the morning. After we came back, we would meditate and pray. And that was a daily routine, seven days a week. What do you think, looking at this house, about what it's like to live in America now? I don't think there's any way to compare the two. 
So on the roof upstairs, we used to get up there and we would fly kites and we would have contests with neighbors to see who could use the string to cut down a neighbor's kite. And those were called kite fights. Smaller kids played cricket in this part of the park and then the larger kids played cricket in this part. There used to be a bush and I jumped in the bush one day and inside the bush was a bee's nest. And I started screaming, Margaya, Margaya, which means I'm dying. Seeing everything has made me just so much more thankful and grateful for my grandfather and everything that he did. There are so many things that happen in the city that it's really overwhelming or like my stimulus. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know now like where I get my hustle from because this city does not stop. Tomorrow we are going to Haridwar to the river Ganges to deposit my grandfather's ashes into the river and I think that's going to be like pretty intense. Um, I am so thankful that I can be here to honor my grandfather that way. I already feel like I'm changed after just one day. I already feel that I'm changed after one day. To return to the land where you're from, I want to expand this experience and even personalize it for you. Uh, when, what are your origins in the United States? And unless you're fully Native American, there's some migration experience that you have in your narrative. When did that happen for you? And the second question is, what would it be like to return to that place of origin? Whether it was a few years ago or many generations ago, what would be your experience to return to that place of origin? And that's the social context for Ezra Nehemiah. And so what you see here is this incredible emotional experience, a meaningful experience, a lot of joy, a lot of connection. But Michelle of Indian descent is only there for a few days. She's returning to the States. The real question is not only what would it be like to go there, what it would be like to go there forever, to stay there for good. And, so, and that is the repatriation of the Judeans third generation children, second, third, fourth generation children that are returning to the place where they're from for the first time. So the question I want to throw out is what are some of the challenges that Michelle would face if she were to never return to the US? If I just give you 30 seconds to think about that, that she would face, or maybe you would face as well. I've been commanded to stay by here for the video, so I'm gonna, I'd usually go out there. And so if, uh, I'm gonna just list just a few answers and I'll repeat them for the recording. Uh, so what, what are some of the challenges? Someone, yes. Identity, Identity. great. Others? Language. Language. Finances. Personal interactions. Daily interactions. Legal status. Legal status cultural norms, climate, 
climate and farming, raising a family, faith practice, maybe not being a welcome presence. Uh, yes. Relationships. Relationships. Accessing basic necessities like groceries. Okay, we're done for the week. <laughs> yes, I, I know. <laughs> I think that, uh, this is the heart of what the returnees had to face when they came back to the U.S. When they came back to to Jerusalem, places that they'd never been before, where there were hopes and dreams and excitement, surely portrayed here very very visually, but also challenges that we cannot begin to understand. So in repatriation, I, I realized in my situation, I came at the height of privilege. I came with a job. I had full immigration status, including medical coverage. We had money, a place to live. We had family. Uh, we all spoke the language. Uh, and I had a job to return to, so there was huge security. Uh, I could go back. Uh, but even with that, the repatriation has enough commonalities that it helped me look at Ezra Nehemiah. So actually, that book, The Economics of Diaspora, I haven't written that at all. I haven't even sent the proposal. Uh, and I diverted to Ezra Nehemiah. And so just about two months ago, I finished uh, the first manuscript for a book called The Theology of the Books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I actually wrote it for um, someone who was associated with Princeton. Someone, Patrick Miller, is one of the editors. And uh, Brent Strawn, a graduate, is one of the other editors for that. I'm in the midst of writing a commentary. This is not due till 2023, so I have four more years to postpone and delay and procrastinate. Uh, and so I'm writing the Ezra Nehemiah commentary for the Old Testament Library with Westminster John Knox. Uh, so about 10 years of my life is Ezra Nehemiah. And part of my, in my proposals, I want to front repatriation as an interpretive lens that I think has been missed. Because in my experience, even limited, going back to Korea 47 years later, it, it's not the center, but it does touch on everything that I did. My whole existence in Korea was fronted by the fact that we as ethnic Koreans were returning back in so many different ways. It was, so, um, it was such a unique immigration experience for us. And in fact, repatriation uh, has become a burgeoning immigration subfield. So immigration studies started in the early 20th century, and ironically, it started from looking at the Babylonian exile, with Judeans leaving for, for Babylon after having their, their place destroyed. And it wasn't until the 1980s, really, where repatriation got its own subfield within immigration studies. What happened previously is a lot of repatriates weren't considered immigration experiences. And, and for example, I was recognized as a dual citizen. I didn't know that, but when I was born, apparently my dad sent information to Korea. And you, you know how I found out? Remember that military service? They came to my work to tell me it was time for my military service. And I, I had no idea I was a Korean citizen at the time because I came in as a US passport. But the records are meticulous, I guess, uh, when it comes to military service. Uh, and so repatriation is now coming as a self. And even though my experience was very different, there are a lot of commonalities. And as, as I studied the social sciences of repatriation, I saw a lot of themes which you just mentioned. Uh, identity is a huge thing that we'll talk about in a couple of days. Uh, and what that means theologically, there's some pretty nasty theology in Ezra Nehemiah. There's theology that is really troubling. And I'm 
really explicitly like the mixed marriage ban in two parts of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, for this week, I'm going to ask you to suspend your moral judgment for a slight second until you really enter the space of a repatriate trying to negotiate identity. Uh, suspend that moral judgment and understand marriage as not something of choice and love, because it wasn't until like very recently in human history. But it's really something of identity and access and alignment and also economic protection with dowries and gifts. And so I think repatriation won't make it super comfortable for you, but repatriation might be an explanatory frame for a lot of theology in Ezra and Nehemiah. It fronts with Ezra 1 through 3, 1, 1 through 3, the prologue. And uh, when Cyrus comes and says, any of those among you who are his people, may their God be with them, and now are permitted to go up, to rise. So Jerusalem is located high. You're actually walking up. It has something to do probably with a psalm of ascents. And this is also uh, essentially the ending of Chronicles. And so this is a tie to the narrative of Chronicles. And so uh, it's actually fronted also in the narrative text. And here in Ezra Nehemiah, we have a very unique look at a return after the exile. And there's no other narrative that actually depicts this. Chronicles ends with that verse, and it picks up with Ezra Nehemiah. The whole God of Ezra Nehemiah is this God during the post-exilic period, the God of the repatriation. And what happens during this time? What happens during a repatriation? Well, it really depends a lot on the repatriation. And one of the things that immigration studies has revealed is their commonalities and their differences. But we realize in all of recorded human history, there is repatriation. And it comes for a variety of reasons. And those reasons will kind of form the experience. So some examples of repatriation, long-term study abroad, then returning to your country. Political refugee, religious refugee, mail-order brides can be a form of repatriation. Uh, Long-term migrant workers, forcibly abducted slaves. There are repatriations distinguished in terms of the country of origin, the country that you're, you're sojourning in, in the economic status of both. Uh, your political status as well. Sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's coerced. And for example, the leave from Jerusalem to Babylon, that was coerced, but the return seemed to be voluntary because we know that some stayed. So what would cause people to return back to Jerusalem? In all of this, the return permitted to go up leads to this repatriation which I think is such an important theological theme that's been missed. It's both humanistic and humanitarian. It's humanistic because this is a common thread throughout human experience, not just repatriation, but broadly immigration. And by studying the text of Ezra and Nehemiah through the lens of repatriation, I think you as preachers will find a commonality with people in your congregations that, that deal with this in their own very life. It's humanitarian in that repatriation involves looking for freedoms. Uh, my mom and dad left a very, very poor country with hopes and dreams uh, for not themselves, their progeny, for their children, to give us a new life. So these themes are very prevalent and they're very powerful and can be robust theologically for the congregations that you lead. As you look at this picture, imagine 
all the changes, all the differences, all the things that come back for a country that you haven't been to in a long, long time. You're actually experiencing this. I realized this last night at dinner in a very small way. Uh, some of you haven't been to Princeton in a long time, right? And it's kind of a, a micro experience because Princeton's changed since you were last here. And it, you have changed. And your story of Princeton might not reflect your time at Princeton, but who you are right now. So one example, my mom talks about Korea in the 1960s. Well, I know Korea in the 1960s from history books. It was essentially a military dictatorship. It was extremely poor. It was oppressive. But the way she talks about it is um, a lot more nostalgic. Talks about being with her family. Talks about uh, her siblings. Like my brother and I fought tremendously growing up. So it's usually a moral lesson, like don't fight with your brother when she talks about how awesome Korea is. Uh, and it, it came to realize that 1960s Korea was a construct of her social memory, largely predicated on her experience in America. So coming to America, you will not believe this if you go now, but growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was one of three Asians in my elementary school, me, my brother, and another kid, uh, which is mind-boggling uh, to think about today. Uh, the last name Nam is probably not the best Asian name to have in the 60s and 70s. And so my cousins who are much older would tell me stories about my dad that, oh, we would see your dad fighting with white guys, rolling on the ground with them. We're so proud of him. I'm like, what? Why is that? Not my dad? What does he do? I don't know their experiences. I was just a kid. I didn't internalize them. And the talk about Korea is a construct that has basis in reality and experience, but more the reality in her own memory of what that is. And that's tremendously important as you look at who the God of Ezra Nehemiah is. When you look at Ezra Nehemiah and you look at the re repatriation experiences, that's a huge part of what makes it so hard. So this is a well-known painting by Tissot. Tissot actually went to Jerusalem. This is um, called The Flight of the Prisoners, uh, late 19th century painting. He went to Jerusalem to study accounts of the Babylonian exile. Uh, and to some things he got actually right. And for example, the topography, Jerusalem does have good fortifications naturally. It sits in the middle of three valleys by the time of Babylon. One, one, of, the, one of the valleys was filled. When the south, even if you go today, you see um, the Hinnom Valley. And it's actually not as deep as it was in antiquity because in Jerusalem, when they build something, when they capture and build, they tend to level it off and fill the valley a little bit. In, um, in the uh, eastern side, they had the, um, uh, the Kidron Valley as well. So they're natural fortifications, and he got that right. Uh, the walls are way too big, and according to Second Kings, they should have been leveled. And um, the soldiers you see at the left look reflective more of 20th century Bedouins than actual Babylonian soldiers. But overall, you get the idea of the exile. You see the city burning being this tremendously traumatic experience. And what you do see in Ezra and Nehemiah, it begins in crisis. It begins in trauma. And not a trauma that's individualized, but a collective trauma of the people, because it begins with the end of Chronicles. And the end of Chronicles is really the perspective of the Davidic dynasty in light of the exile. And so what happened in 586, the, the city of Jerusalem was leveled, meaning the temple was destroyed. The Davidic dynasty came to an end. 
And that's really difficult because God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 that this would be a forever dynasty. He would made that promise. And in fact, a few generations earlier, the Assyrians, the most powerful army in the world, they could not defeat Jerusalem. So people believe that promise even so much more. And so Ezra Nehemiah begins in repatriation. That repatriation begins with a historical narrative in trauma. Trauma studies is a huge thing in biblical studies these days. It really started with a scholar named Kathleen O'Connor. He wrote this book called Pain and Promise, looking at Jeremiah. And she took on um, an articulation of trauma by Kathy Carruth. And it says, it's an event um, and a memory of the event that registers the force of the experience that is not yet fully owned. So something happens, but you don't realize the force of that till much later. And that's something traumatic in their collective memory. And this trauma was played out in Ezra and Nehemiah, because remember, they go, and the city is nothing. They have to build everything. In fact, Nehemiah 1, for a couple of generations, the walls have not been built yet. And it's, it's said in Nehemiah chapter 1, you see the battered state of the city gates, the walls. Uh, there's great trouble and shame. It describes them as breached and burnt. And so if you would imagine going to um, the 9-11 site and seeing that they clean nothing since 2001, that's kind of like a visual daily reminder of the state of, of Jerusalem. And it's through that crisis that Nehemiah begins to address his particular text. I should say parenthetically, I treat Ezra Nehemiah as a unified book, and that's pretty common for most scholars. There are some exceptions, but there are several reasons for Ezra Nehemiah being treated as one book and as distinct from Chronicles. A long time ago, because of the bridge, people assume Chronicles Ezra Nehemiah was all written by the same person, but uh, the Hebrew's different, the, the themes are different. One, one example, Solomon and David, the Davidic dynasty is really important in Chronicles. It's hardly even mentioned in Ezra Nehemiah for reasons I'll get to tomorrow. And so you have this collective narrative of trauma. And it's shown, this here is, uh, in the 1970s, they, they were doing construction in Jerusalem. And they found a remnant of a city wall. And you can see this wall is estimated to be at nine meters tall. And so uh, around them, the wall they found actually res uh, arrowheads. Uh, something terrible happened in 586. There's not a ton of archaeological evidence because Jerusalem is a modern city. Uh, for some reason, people don't want you excavating in your living room to find stuff. And more than that, the political reasons for excavating, having some claims to land, whether it be by Palestinians or Israeli. But you do see evidence of trauma and destruction in 586 that still resides there today. This verse should also surprise you because the Spirit of the Lord uh, the spirit of Cyrus is stirred by the Lord. And that's kind of weird because typically the Lord stirs the spirit of King David. So it's immediately showing you something different, that the Davidic dynasty is indeed politically defunct. And now Cyrus, a foreign pagan king, is now taking that role. And within Ezra Nehemiah, you have all these ideals of trauma. And just to talk about a few of them, just moving itself. Uh, I spoke to two people yesterday at my table. One, uh, she estimated she had moved seven to 10 times uh, until age 18. Another is still at the house she was born. Like her, her mom is there, but um, 
but still there. They hadn't moved ever, even to this day, from the house where she was raised. Uh, you talk about, as pastors, you know the stress indicators, the life event stress indicators, probably death of a spouse is number one, and then divorce, marital separation, incarceration. Uh, what they also notice is moving in itself is part of these stressors. In fact, they did a recent study, and the majority of people, six out of 10, said moving was the most stressful event of their life. Number two was actually marital separation. And I know that moving's more stressful because on the list of stress events, you know what's on there besides marital separation? Marriage is on there as well. You're moving for that. Back in the day, uh, don't think about the U-Haul. Think about like Oregon Trail. Like you're moving and you're going to die. <laughs> like some, you're going to lose some people on the move. Uh, when we went to Korea for a year, we didn't plan this. So much stuff comes up. We did an all-nighter the night before we left on the plane. Like we didn't sleep, and then we just got the kids up and got on the plane. There is so much stuff to do. There's so much stress. We'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow, but there is huge economic crisis. Uh, largely, Ezra Nehemiah speaks very positively. When there's blessing in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, the blessing often comes materially. And so Ezra Nehemiah largely talks about the generosity of the temple, the generosity of the Persians. But if you look closely at the text, you see things that indicate they're, they're economically oppressed. And that matches what we know from archaeology of this period. So Ezra 4.13 mentions tribute, custom, or toll. Already you see a three-tiered taxation system placed on the Judeans. Uh, they use the word pelic, which is translated districts on most of your Bibles. It's probably better translated as a labor that you had to get from that district. And so at any time, the Persian government can say, through the Judeans, can see we need um, this area to give us 20 able-bodied males to help us on these building projects. And Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13 is the big indicator where they complain never directly about the Persians, but about the tax. We're having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. And this tax is so oppressive that they're selling their children. They're losing their children to debt slavery because of this tax. And the Bible is so laconic, right? It doesn't say a lot. But it mentions in Nehemiah 5, even our daughters are ravished which is an indicator of what is the slavery experience that is gendered, that is female over male, and what kind of horrors are the daughters of slavery going through because of this oppressive economic measure. And with all these, you have to be careful what archaeology can do, but sometimes it can illuminate a little bit. We, we have uh, seals uh, in four major areas that show this collective system. So the collection taxes was both in-kind and silver, and so you had to put in oil or grain, and so this is a stamp that would say this belongs to the government. We also have structures. I excavated Ramat Rahel with a team in 2006, and look at the size of those boulders. I had actually never done manual labor as a kid. I had allergies as a child, and so my brother had to do the yard work, and I, I didn't have to do any of it. And so I remember going to excavation as a grad student. They give me a pickaxe, um, and I just start working. I'm going with my bravado and enthusiasm. Within five minutes, I'm covered in sweat and exhausted. 
I'm volunteering for eight hours per day. I'm, a, I'm questioning my life decisions at that moment <laughs> in my first five minutes. It takes a lot to move those rocks, to query them, and to put them in place. And I got a sense of the tremendous labor. And this is actually, we're excavating a Persian period site. And so uh, what they found that year was a beautiful water system that was reflective of monumental architecture and architecture of authority. So it didn't have function. It was more to look cool so they could have this place. In the midst of this impoverished land, they had a beautiful site. Uh, this is just a side thing. Ramat Rahel has been in the news very recently because <laughs> this is a cool part of art. They actually looked at some vessels of different archaeological sites. They were able to get spores of yeast. They were able to match that yeast with modern day examples. And they brewed beer that came from five, up to 5,000 years ago. And the guy that you see, the third from the left, Aaron Meyer, is the leader of this project. He's a professor at Tel Aviv, at Barlan University. And he, they brewed it. And before that moment, when these Israelis from Tel Aviv University are about to have communion with beer that's 5,000 years old, he said, in a few moments, we might all be dead. <laughs> and so <suddenly> they, <laughs> they tried it. They sampled different beers from different regions of the ancient Near East. If I was one of those, I would have been like, you know, pretending to drink to see if everyone's okay. Uh, but they actually found spores from Ramat Rahel as, as part of that. So if you hear Ramat Rahel in the news, you don't know how you're going to be received. So I was in Korea, um, a couple, a couple more points, and then we'll uh, close this off, and I'll take some questions. Um, I was in Korea, and I was in a line to grab some coffee at McDonald's. And there's a long line of Koreans. And this was, was fairly recently, about two years ago. And uh, this was in Seoul, so a lot of internationals. There's uh, an Egyptian guy. He looks at the long line of Koreans. And he goes straight to me and asks me a question in English. And I, I answer him. And then I, I said, well, how did you know that I spoke English? I said, oh, you just look it. <laughs> you just look like an American. And I said, OK, uh, your relationship. And this explains. Remember, they're not so much called Samaritans. They're called the adversaries and the enemies. And they came, they wanted to worship, but they were rejected. And you have this ongoing conflict between the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, those who stayed, those that did not experience the exile and the return. That defined who they were. They remain as exiles and enemies. And this becomes a huge part of the identity formation because they use words like the children of Israel, the children of the Lord, and the Samaritans are not included. Uh, this is the city of Samaria. We see this actually in certain things like the Samaritan Pentateuch takes the Pentateuch but changes words like the place where you worship at Gerizim. We also know that language is different and so when my mom left in the 60s, a lot of her language carries over. And, and I, she won't admit this, but her brothers do when I talk to them. Like, yeah, your mom's Korean is weird. It's different. Because it did not grow in the same way it did if she had stayed in Korea. And here is a ostrica, a pottery shard. That, uh, and this is one of the very few examples from northern Israel where they spell the word for wine differently than they do in the Bible. And so there's dialectical difference happening. It's reflected in the epigraphic text. There are relationship crises. There's this great meme on expectations and reality. And this is really the heart. Uh, you go to the Great Wall, expectations versus reality. Uh, the baking one is awesome. 
my kid loved Thomas. You try to make something that's a little bit different. Baby pictures is another great genre. I actually think the one on the right's better. That's my favorite one of the two. It looks much more pure and honest. But Ezra Nehemiah is filled with unmet expectations. Remember, they build this mound, this altar for worship, and everybody's joyful except for the older people. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, uh, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations 47 years ago, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy. And it explains you cannot distinguish between the weeping and the shouts for joy in this text. So there's this expectation that's not being, like, you're going to come, you've never been to this land, and you hear these stories about this wonderful temple, this wonderful dynasty, and you come and it's not the same. And that's true for a lot of repatriation experiences. You immigrant, you migrate to another culture, and you're marginalized in all sorts of ways. People treat you differently. You come back and you expect something, but it's nothing like you expected. This is different now, but in the olden days when you went to Korea, uh, my family, we stand in the line, and in the line it says um, the word for foreigners, and it's translated in English as aliens. So literally from the time before we actually enter Korea through immigration, we have to pass through there are all the, the Korean citizens there, the natives, but those with foreign passports need to go through the line that says aliens. So perhaps uh, that is reflective of a liminality that the returnee repatriate Judeans were experiencing here. You have a collective trauma, trauma of crisis, economic, relational, unmet expectations. Uh, these all form your return, and these all frame the context of the theology of Ezra Nehemiah. And because this is a theology within a liminal space, I uh, encourage you this week, as we have our time to think about this text in ways that you can preach from it, because there are people in your communities that are in deep liminal spaces right now. And I know uh, that you want to form a community of faith that will be welcoming to these communities, where they can come and see um, their, their concerns their lives being met through the preaching that you do for them. Even if you're not in that space, a deep study in the text can bring you there. And that's why I think this is so important for your preaching.